Amen. Amen. Well, beloved, if you would remain standing out of uh, honor for the Lord's word and turn your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Beloved, before I read the first portion of that letter of Paul, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading and preaching of his word. Let us pray. Now, I do now come to that most solemn task of opening up your word and, Lord, learning of your will. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us hearts to receive, eyes to see, ears to hear, that you would come and do a saving work, Lord, in your elect, in your church, in those whom you have called to yourself, Lord, and Lord, for the purpose of building up and, Lord, making holy. Now, take this passage of Scripture this morning, Lord, and glorify yourself. Build up this holy temple, Lord, that you have placed in the earth, Lord, with this most solemn word, this most holy word, this divine word. And Lord, at the end, we shall give you all the praise and the glory for our sanctification, for our salvation, Lord, for our favor that we have in Christ Jesus. And all of God's people said, amen. And beloved, I want to begin reading at verse one. Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, beloved, the church at Corinth had only been established maybe five to six years before Paul writes this letter. It has been reported and it come to Paul's attention that there were some great factions and schisms and doctrinal errors and even some very grievous immorality found in the visible church, the local church there at Corinth. Now, it shouldn't surprise us as those who have studied the word of God, those who have, are familiar with the, the totality of God's word, that Satan is always lurking to infiltrate the church. Now, how does Satan do that? Well, Satan does that through a variety of ways. But the most prominent way he does that is through false teachers, those who come that those who come with such a superiority of knowledge and understanding charismatic personalities are always dangerous if they're not well attached to sound doctrine we are always subject to listen to people we like even when they're not totally right and that can have a devastating impact upon ourselves when we listen to them 
and even upon the church when they invite them in, especially to hear their teaching. But that's not the only way Satan is able to infiltrate the church. And beloved, we must confess that we all bring with us carnality and sinfulness that we have to battle and deal with on a regular basis, a daily basis. And those, well, they're with us present this morning, aren't they? You know, one of the issues that they had at Corinth was if they didn't like you or somehow if you weren't pleasing to them, they were not going to listen to you even if you were right. That's how, that's the emphasis they had placed on appearances and popularity. But I think that's true today. If someone doesn't strike our fancy from the get-go, we're more likely to just listen in a ho-hum way than we are to really sit and eagerly hear what comes out of their mouth at something that may be edifying to us to build us up in Christ. So we all have to battle these sins, these personal sins. We all have to battle these preferences, keeping them in check so that we don't allow our preferences to to sort of bust out and have a negative impact upon those, our lives and well, those around us. I can't tell you how many churches have been destroyed and devastated, not over necessarily false doctrine, but over personal preferences. People willing to burn the church down unless they get their way. That pride, that arrogance is satanic. Satan uses oftentimes good people to do evil things. And so Paul has to write this letter to correct the church, to admonish the church, if you will. And that's what he says. I write this so that you might be admonished for what you have allowed to happen in your midst. As we make connections from the old administration of the church in the Old Testament and the new administration of the church, that is, as the temple of the Lord is built up in all of its glory and it's sturdy and strong and its doors are perpendicular and level and plumb and the church is not crooked, the walls aren't leaning, but when the church is in her glory and in her beauty, the effect of it is to bring well, attention to wrongdoing and sin. When the church is in her glory, in her doctrine, in her practice, in her worship, in the understanding that God is holy and he has called his people out of the world, out of darkness, out of the kingdom of Satan and he has brought them now into the kingdom of light that they too may be holy as he is holy. When the church has this perspective and understanding and they believe that they have been empowered to do such glorious work and service unto the Lord, yes, they are ashamed when they look at their sins. That's Ezekiel 43. Sturdy up the church. 
Let the church stand out in all of its beauty and glory so that my people might be ashamed. Ashamed of what? Well, ashamed of everything that contradicts that glory and beauty. Ashamed of everything that's against what we might call order, structure, truth, sincerity, integrity, both personal and corporate. Well, beloved, I plan this morning to lay before you four heads of doctrine out of these first three verses, four heads of doctrine that I think are essential for us to consider to make sure that we aren't seeing stress cracks over the windows and door openings and case openings, that we're not seeing bumps in the floor where the foundation is subject to being, well, replaced with some form of worldly teaching. We need to consider these things. We have to do a a health check ourselves. And this is where the Apostle Paul begins in addressing even the church at Corinth. So it's certainly good enough for them. It's certainly good enough for us that we might, what? Check ourselves. That we might consider, are we wedded to these things? Are we resting upon this solid foundation? And that's been the sort of theme of the last three sermons, this being the third sermon, that there is this solid foundation that has been laid for the church and we must rest upon that foundation and not seek to replace it with some YouTube theologian, no matter if he has millions of followers or not. Some Instagram pastor And we must rest upon what has been revealed to us in the word of Holy Scripture and trust it. We just sang a hymn about trusting in the Lord, resting in him. Then to do that is that we have peace with God because we rest in him that when we do these things, guess what will be accomplished? His most sovereign will towards us, which is beloved Grace and peace, as we will see. Now, what is this first doctrine that I want to bring to you? As well, it's one that we've already addressed, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one this morning, but it is the apostolic authority. It's apostolic authority. Paul clearly is writing in Already, even though this is a very traditional way of opening up his letters, he is certainly addressing many of the problems that are existing, that's in existence in the body. He says, Paul is called an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's an office he was called to. He didn't assume it to himself. That's important. And it's just something I want to emphasize this morning. Why is that important? Because Paul is having to combat these so-called self-called apostles. And they called themselves super apostles. That's how they elevated themselves above Paul. Not only were they in one sense superior in appearance, philosophers, 
modern day philosophers, very popular, powerful in rhetoric, able to give speeches that would gather large groups of people. That was not Paul at all. In fact, Paul says, I shy away from that. I come to you knowing nothing than Jesus Christ. I didn't come to you with these persuasive words, but with the power of the gospel. And Paul says, I was called an apostle of Jesus Christ. I did not assume this office to myself. I didn't take it upon myself. I didn't go out and fill out a form and pay a fee and become an apostle and get a license online that now I can do this, that, and the other in the church. I was called of Christ. And we've already looked at how that calling happened. Paul was on the way to do more damage to the church. He was on the way to continue to persecute the church of Jesus Christ. And Jesus stopped him in his tracks and said, Paul, why do you persecute me? Astounding, Paul, because he didn't believe it. Well, that this was the body of Christ. He just thought that these were crazy people. And he was doing God a great service. And of course, he had to repent of that and he learned that he was wrong in that and he addresses that in 2 Corinthians very clearly. Maybe we'll get there one day. But Paul is called, he's not assuming this. Brothers and sisters, how has the church been ravished by men assuming the ministry and not really being called to it? Men that may have great organizational skills. Men that may have great business savvy. Men that may have been CEOs of of Fortune 500 companies. Heads of boards and whatnot. And yet that in somehow has qualified them to become ministers in the church of Jesus Christ. Beloved, that is not the qualifications of a minister. The very first qualification is that they must be called of Christ. That calling of Christ becomes evident in the skill sets, in the gifts that Christ gives to his called one. Gifts that are visible to the body in which they minister or which they're coming up in. But that's not the only thing. I've known men that are, I envy their ability to preach, the clarity, the the power of vocabulary, the words that they use to describe, their, their ability to describe things and bring all that are listening to them into that context of what they're talking about and yet be some of the most unholy men I know. So there's a dual aspect to this calling. There is this calling that Christ places upon the person. And then there is that that corporate calling that the church must recognize the gifts and the qualifications. Does he meet them found in Holy Scripture? And he may not have a PhD by his name. Some churches make that a Well, priority. Nothing wrong with a PhD, beloved. Obviously, nothing wrong with a PhD. 
But when the PhD overrides the divine gifts and the spiritual qualifications, what have we done to the body of Christ? But weakened her by putting someone in the role of ministry that Christ has not called, which will only prove to be a great source of aggravation for the man and for the body. So that's number one in that apostolic authority. And Paul goes on, he says, it's not just that he's called of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ being the head of the church and that's that second point of doctrine that we'll see in just a minute, but that Paul is understanding that that the role of, of this apostle is to lay the foundation of the church. It's to preach the gospel. It's not to wow people with himself. Paul says, everything I do, I do for Christ's sake. Everything I teach, all that I preach, all of my example, the tent making aspect of it. Paul says, all of these things I do, I do for the edification, the building up of this holy temple in the Lord and for the Lord's glory and the benefit of the body of Christ. And Paul will go on throughout the letter as we will see. He will use terminology like we are the ambassadors. We are the called ones. We are the stewards of these mysteries in Christ. Paul says, I mean, totally dedicated. We talked about last week. You can go back and listen to last week's sermon. But we talked about how Paul said, we just, the apostles, this office, this unique, extraordinary office that no longer exists that no longer exist. There are no more apostles like Paul living. And when the last apostle died, that extraordinary office died with the apostles. Flowing out of them what we might call ministers, pastors, teaching elders. To carry on what? The gospel ministry uh, that's, that now is to build upon the foundation that was laid by the apostles. I hope that's clear to you. What happens when the people go out and, 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 and they reject this apostolic authority? It's not appealing. It's not attractive. It, well, you know, it doesn't really wow the world, academia. It doesn't wow the scholars of the age. I mean, look, Corinth was taking over the whole philosophical, the whole uh, philosophical spectrum of, of rhetoric and, and wisdom, and they were replacing Athens at, Athens at this time. It was a city that was economically, oh, I mean, they were rich, they were wealthy, they were educated, and you can see how Satan would use that in this, this, this newfound church as it's growing up in the preaching of the apostles, in, the, in the, the, the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. You can see how Satan could easily come and go, look how, simp look how rude this is compared to this. 
Look how elementary Paul is. Paul, we know, was not a physical specimen. We, we, I mean, Paul even addresses this. Even Paul would had to have others dictate his letters, even though this one he says, I've written like with my own hand here. Well, I mean, Paul was not someone, oh, he's very educated, in the, in, at least in the school of the rabbis and whatnot. But Paul did not compete with what we might call these worldly philosophers And over time, Satan was able to use that to infiltrate the church. It is not uncommon, beloved. Certainly not uncommon for pastors to have to constantly contend with a member or several members that come to him or the session and we don't talk about some YouTube video or some YouTube teaching or some this or some that that, that is just irrelevant to the health and the well-being and, and the, of the body, the local body. That's not to say they're not interesting things. But it's to say this, there are, there are tons of distractions. Tons of distractions. And it is incumbent upon us to focus our attention on what the Lord has laid before us and with those who have been called to the ministry in Christ to, to bring about the desired effect of the head of the church in the body of Christ. So there's that apostolic authority. And I will say this. In fact, let's, there's a couple of passages, or at least one passage, there were more, but for the sake of time, just turn to chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, and let me add this commentary before I even read the text, and it is this. And brothers and sisters, I've said it in the weeks prior to this morning, but if it's, if the Christian, if it's a Christian church, it's an apostolic church. If it's not an apostolic church, meaning that it is not grounded upon the gospel that the apostles taught, it's not grounded upon the doctrines of the apostles, it's not grounding upon the revelation of the word of God, as we learned in Ephesians 2, of the Old Testament prophets and these New Testament apostles, it is not a Christian church. It may be an assembly, It may be a gathering, but it's not a church. It's not a church of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you were saved, if... You hold fast the word which I preach to you unless you believed in vain. That's apostolic authority. Paul is saying, listen, you have to hold fast to the gospel I preach to you. Not not these influencers. The gospel I preach to you. If you hold fast to the gospel I preach to you, then you're great, you're good, you're in good standing. 
Now notice what he says in verse three, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Notice what Paul says. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Received from whom? Christ. Christ gave to the apostles their doctrine so that they may what? Teach it to the church. Can any of these influencers say that? Could any of these influencers come to the church and say, listen, I have received this from the Lord and now I give to you. No, they could not. They could not, claim, they could not make that claim. But here, here we see this apostolic authority that Paul says, what I received from Christ, I faithfully gave to you. It's yours you now possess what Christ wanted you to have that he gave to you through me. I have given to you. Treasure it. Protect it, beloved. Defend it. Hold on to it. Isn't that what he says in verse two? Hold fast this word. We would do much better, we'd be much better off, beloved, if we became better students of Holy Scripture and not the followers of men. And I'm not saying men are important. Certainly the Apostle Paul's important here. And the Apostle Paul had no problem saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But beloved, in a culture, in a day that we live in that is so infatuated with appearance, what things look like, it doesn't, I mean, w listen, I guess I could be really rude and talk about how cheap we've become. And what I mean by cheap is, well, we've all been, well, we've all been groomed, can I use that word, in a positive way? We've all been groomed to shop at Walmart and to buy junk and to buy it four and five, six times. Just use it and throw it away. Use it and throw it away. Use it and throw it away. And what impact has that made upon our theology? What impact has that made upon our church, societies, and communion? What impact has that made upon how we view the church in this world and how we view one another? That's a worthy question, isn't it? The second doctrine that I want to lay before you this morning that we should consider is the headship of Christ. You know, the thing that I was struck with as I was reading First and Second Corinthians and listening to it over and over and over is I was like, wow, this church had so many, had the problems of a denomination. Here's what I mean by that. You know, it's, it's not uncommon for denominations to have one church that might be laxed upon doctrine, one church that might have so, that might be so affluent, you know, so gifted in one sense that they're arrogant, very prideful, cliquish, partisan, 
Then there's the church that is, well, you know, struggling with immorality and church discipline and, you know, another church struggling sort of with the, the ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And, I mean, but all of that is in this one church. The church at Corinth possessed a whole denomination of sins. And Paul is, is certainly writing to execute this letter in order to, to reestablish a solid foundation so that this, this, this edifice might be built up and, well, actually be what it was designed and built to be, a glorious holy temple unto the Lord. But it's the headship of Christ, the headship of Christ. And beloved, every minister worthy of his calling, everyone, all elders, I mean, but every teaching elder, I mean, the ones that get up and open up, that have the, the responsibility, the duty, the privilege of opening up the word of God. Listen to me. Every one, if they're not setting before you the headship of Christ, his person and work, they have failed. Your calling to holiness is not because you want to impress me. It's not because you want to impress one another. It's because you want to grow up in the head of the church who is Christ. You want to be built up in Christ in love. And the, the, the greater that conformity, the, 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 the clearer that conformity, the greater the service is among the body. It is not about creating followers of pastors and sessions. It's about creating disciples of Christ. His headship, his glory, his ministry, his work, it's all to the praise of Christ. Anything in me, as Paul said, and I echo anything worthy of emulation, all comes from Christ. You want to have greater peace? Grow up in Christ. You want to have greater victory over your sins? Grow up into Christ. You want to have a greater impact on the people around you for holiness sake, for righteousness sake and all? Grow up in Christ. Beloved, as Paul says, I, I'm a, an apostle called of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul's whole life was dedicated to setting before the church of God Christ and pushing and moving and admonishing and shoving and rebuking and encouraging all to just continue to grow up in him. It wasn't about Paul's personal preferences. 
It wasn't about all of his pleasures and all of his likes and everything that he wanted to do and whatnot, all of those. In fact, even when Paul in the latter part of 2 Corinthians goes to the Lord and he says, Lord, I, I mean, I went and I beseeched the Lord on three different occasions to do what? Take away this thorn in my flesh, he says. And what does God say? No, no. I won't. And Paul says to the people at Corinth, he says, and you know, the reason God didn't take away this thorn in my flesh where I thought if I could get rid of this, this aggravation, this offense, I thought I could be a better service to Christ. He said, but what I learned was it was going to be in that affliction and in that offense that God was going to empower me and use me to do what? Build up the body of Christ and to, to exalt Christ's power and glory. Brothers and sisters, the headship of Jesus Christ is valuable. When we're talking about what we're doing here at Calcinon Church, we have to talk about what's the head of the church want? What's, how are we glorifying him? How are we growing up in him? If we want to do something, how is that going to affect our growth in Christ? How is that going to move us? How is that going to foster greater peace? How is that going to foster greater joy? How is that going to foster a, a greater love for God and one another? How is that going to foster a greater light to the world? How is it going to help us be salt to this environment that we live in? You might say, beloved, I mean, of course, again, I mean, Satan is so crafty and we're so gullible in one sense. We're so prone to it, to, you know, there is a place where we honor people. That's the first commandment. We are to have no other gods before him. And that commandment teaches us to honor that which is honorable. But even when we honor men and honor women and those worthy of some public honor, we are never to honor them above, beside, or around God. He stands alone in his honor and in his glory. And it doesn't matter what honor any person has, they never are allowed to override the headship of Christ. Ever. It's not even on the table. It's not even considered. And we don't consider. Beloved, it's either Christ or Antichrist. Christ or Antichrist. First John chapter 2. In verse 18 and verse 22, it says, Children, in this last hour, just as you have heard that that antichrist is coming. Even now many antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Verse 22, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 3 
It says, in every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which we have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. Beloved, when anyone comes into the church to oppose the headship of Christ, they are the Antichrist. They come with an Antichrist spirit. They come with an Antichrist agenda. And they come to lead the church away from her foundation with Christ being the chief cornerstone built upon the prophets and apostles. Second John chapter one, verse seven, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, this is the deceiver and the antichrist. Any perversion, any, any kind of simulation of Christ with some kind of carnal ideas and doctrines and thoughts and philosophies, beloved, becomes antichrist. And you get a good dose of that every year, usually on the History Channel around the resurrection in springtime. You get all kinds of worldly ideas about Jesus. And the fact is there are more professing believers sitting in church that has more in common with the History Channel Jesus than the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You see, beloved, when we talk about the headship of Christ, we're talking about the King of kings and Lord of lords. We're talking about submission we're talking about the yielding of your own personal conscience to Jesus. He has the authority over your conscience. He has the authority over your will. I don't want to do that. Pray that he give you that grace, that he would give you repentance, that he would give you that desire, joy, and love to do and perform his most marvelous and good will. So that's the second doctrinal head. The third one is very similar and like it, and that is the sovereignty of God. Paul says, I'm an, uh, called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. When we talk about the church, and, and, and why is the will of God important to even this letter and important to us today? Well, because there are many people that want to restructure the church. The church is birth due to the will of God. Before the foundation of the world, what did God do? God had determined whom he would save. Who would come to know him? Who would repent of their sins and put their faith in his blessed son that he has established on his holy hill of Zion? We're talking about the sovereignty of God we're talking about, you know, look, just in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God, Paul mentions God 22 times out of 30 verses. That, that's not the whole book. I mean, it's just <laughs> dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens more time. Giving us the impression and right impression that this certainly, you know, the Christian ministry is a God-centered ministry. It is a meaning a triune ministry. It's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not a ministry that revolves around the family. 
The family is certainly blessed by the Christian ministry. It's not a family, it's not a, a society, a congregation, a church that revolves around certain pet doctrines like eschatology. And we always have eschatological conferences, end time stuff, phenomenon. Our politics. The church was birthed out of the sovereign will of God. God in the very beginning, beloved, who needed nothing, lacked nothing, didn't want for anything, chose out of his mere good pleasure to create the church. We see this in, let's turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter one. For some reason, there are, there's this idea that, that God somehow existed and he was lonely and needed to, well, needed companionship and so he created the church, but that somehow makes the church feel good? Beloved, we don't belittle God to build ourselves up. God did not need anything. He didn't lack anything and he didn't want for anything. He was perfectly whole and complete in his own person, in his own triunity. And it's out of his mere good pleasure, his sovereign will that he chose to create the whole universe, the cosmos, and put man at the head of it. Look at verse three of chapter one of Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Why did God do it? Because he freely wanted to do it. He chose to do it. He was moved out of his own mere good pleasure to do it. There was nothing outside of him that moved him to do it. So we exalt God and we are built up in that exaltation knowing that our God needed nothing, he lacked nothing, he wanted for nothing and yet he created us for himself. Amen. That's a powerful truth, isn't it? It's out of God's mere, God's sovereign will, beloved, that we exist. And we cannot, we cannot allow philosophers, uh, internet gurus, or anybody in or out the church to restructure, refabricate, and to remake the church in some other image. It's the will of God. This is his creation. This is what he engineered. This is birthed out of his own sovereign will and his own mind, his own intellect, his own. And that's what Paul addresses in, in Corinthians because, you know, you have people saying, well, I, we could do it better than this. We could do it better than this, Paul. Paul says, do you not know that the foolishness of God is greater than all of the philosophers of this world? Do you know that? And you're like, oh, of course. You forgot. God doesn't need 
these philosophers. God doesn't need the the rich and the powerful. He doesn't need all of this to magnify himself because the foolishness of God is greater than all the wisdom of the world. And God can take someone like Paul or Peter to lay the foundation of a church, beloved, that has been going on for thousands of years. Thousands of years. And yes, oh, has Satan been attacking the church? hmm? But what did Jesus tell his disciples in Matthew 16? That the gates of hell will not prevail against the church as it's built upon this rock. And that's the same truth that we cling to today when we look around us and we see the implosion of just common decency, order and structure, morality, integrity. It's gone. Mainly from the public square, though God is using all of these riots and all of this, this injustice and all of these, these, these blatant, blatant, unreasonable, illogical uh, uh, quote, science to what? Stir up the church to bring the church back to these heads, to bring the church back up under that apostolic authority, that apostolic teaching, the headship of Jesus Christ, the sovereignty of God. God made this world. God made man male and female. And God didn't make a mistake when he made you a man or when he made you a woman. The first line of obedience is to rise up and be what you were created to be gender-wise, naturally. But that shows you the heart of the rebellion that exists in our own culture and society and in the world, right? That's applauded. That's why you have all of the sexual perversions and what we might call gender confusion. And I think there is some validity to the confusion, but that confusion didn't come from Scripture. It didn't come from the Spirit of God. It didn't come from, quote, truth. It came from those devils who seek to pervert righteousness, who seek to turn things upside down, who seeks to take that which is beautiful and good that God made and pervert it and twist it and to use it for unholy purposes. God is sovereign, beloved. And I'm gonna say this last point and then we'll move on to the fourth one. Don't you be ashamed of God's sovereignty. In fact, let me say this, don't apologize for it. God is sovereign. God is not at all wringing his hands in heaven worried about people thinking that he's overly sovereign. <laughs> well, well, I want to know God's sovereign, but I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, well, I, we, try to, we try to take God and make him palatable to either immature Christians or the world. And that's a problem. We're not to bring God down. We're to lift people up. Amen? Amen. 
We're to bring people up. We're not to apologize that God is sovereign in everything he does. And God is not going to apologize to men. On judgment day, there will be no apology coming from God. None. It'll be men and women giving an answer to him as the sovereign of the world. So that's the third doctrinal head that we should cling to and judge things by. But then the last one is this one. These Christian blessings, and that's found in verse 3. Christian blessing, verse 3. What does Paul say? Well, in verse 2, he says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Paul says, Sanctified, those who have been sanctified. What is sanctification? Well, it's the same word we use, holy. The same Greek word that we translate as sanctified is the same word we translate as holy. And the very first definition and the first importance of, of holiness is being set apart for something. God has in Christ set us apart, has sanctified us for himself. We are no longer ours. We're no longer the family out of the family of Satan, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. But we've been called out of that darkness. We've been called out of that family. We've been brought into a, a heavenly divine family. God has separated us. He is, that's what the, the word church there, ecclesia, has that preposition ek, which means to call out. To call out and gather. Beloved, you who profess the name of Christ, who have repented of your sins, and you put your faith in him, you've been baptized, you've joined the church, what is it? You've been called out of the world. Now you've been assembled so that now you have become God's holy possession in Christ Jesus. You belong to him. Hey, you don't belong to the government. You don't belong to the denomination. You belong to God in Christ. You are sanctified. This is the blessing that he talks of here. We're called saints, which is a derivative of that. It's the idea that those that have been called out now have bear that title of saint, holy one. Set apart, it doesn't necessarily first have that impression of intrinsic purity and holiness, yet that's the goal, isn't it? That we would belong to God, be called out of this world where we lived in this environment of indulgence, carnality and sin and selfishness to now we've been called to God and then now we are to daily die to those selfish desires and grow up in Christ and learn to displace that carnality with righteousness and spirituality, that which is pleasing to God. That's how we hold on to that doctrine that we talked about in chapter 15. These things do belong to you if you hold fast to the faith. Paul says, 
They were, the, beloved, this church was, they were, it was like they were trying to let go of the faith. They were replacing it with the, with the world, thinking they were going to get the same thing as a benefit. These benefit, these Christian blessings, beloved, listen to me. These are Christian graces and they don't belong to, the, they don't belong to Muslims. They don't belong to any false Christian sects. They don't belong to the Mormons. They don't belong to the Jehovah Witnesses. They don't belong to the Hindus. They don't belong to the Hare Krishnas. They belong to Christians because they flow out of Christ by the will of God. That make you uncomfortable? This grace to you and peace. What is this grace? Well, beloved, this grace is God's good will. It's his favor. Grace to you. Favor be from the triune God to you in Christ. It's a state, isn't it? It's a, it's, a, it's a state of being. I was once not in this favorable condition. I was once an enemy of God. I was once at war with God in my mind and in my heart. I was once an indulgent of sin, but now I belong to God in Christ. I now have God's favor. I now have peace with him. I now have his blessing. Does that mean something to you? It should. Because it's not found anywhere else. Now, beloved, I want you to understand something. We're, we are groomed culturally to just be pluralistic when it comes to religious things. We're just all worshiping the same God in a different way. That religious pluralism is going to send a vast multitude to eternal damnation. Beloved, these blessings and these graces are for the sanctified. It is God's kindness. God exerting his benevolence upon us, exerting it, bringing it upon us. That even when we face, as we confessed this morning, these trials, these tribulations, even in these fatherly chastisements, God gives us grace. He helps us understand our favor. He gives us peace. What a blessing. What a blessing. Here's the strength of the blessings. Compare yourself with this. Is there anything at this moment you can think of that can happen in your life that can drive you to deny these blessings? I need to say it again. Is there anything, as now, right now, is there anything that you can think of that could happen in your life and somehow, in whatever God's providence, something can enter into your life that would cause you to deny and reject this grace and peace. For the Christian, they can't do it. 
It's almost like Baal. It's almost like the prophet trying to curse God's people, but he can't do it. A Christian can't can't deny these blessings and graces. Why? Because God holds on to them by his spirit. And even in our greatest time of temptation and testing and chastisement, God has us because we are his favored ones. But beloved, if you can walk away from these graces, I want you to consider whether or not you truly have repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ. I want you to consider where you stand eternally. I want you to consider where you stand in these four doctrinal heads. I want you to consider, is it more attractive and appealing to you to listen to the world than to the teaching of the apostles? Is it more important for you to follow some group, some gathering, religious or not, but not the headship of Jesus Christ? That's too costly. That you find some embarrassment when you discuss the sovereignty of God in conversation. You find yourself apologizing for God. He didn't ask you to do that. And then you find yourself treating these blessings and graces like cheap junk. The church at Corinth was so full of themselves. They thought they were favored because they were rich. They were so gifted prophesying, speaking in tongues, all of these things. They thought they were worthy of these. No, 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 no. You're not worthy of these blessings, beloved. No mortal is outside of Christ. These are blessings that come to those who have been sanctified, to those who have been called, to those who have been blessed with Jesus, those who have had their hearts changed, their eyes focused upon him. Those who can say with the Apostle Paul, I count everything in my life that I once valued as garbage to know Jesus Christ. Compared to knowing Jesus Christ, everything is rubbish. Oh, beloved, I laid these four doctrinal heads before you. Let's use these to start judging our work and labors and ministry here so that we might not ever find ourselves out of accord with the Christian ministry, with the head of the church and the sovereign will of God. That we might not ever forfeit these Christian blessings, but we might always value them and understand where they come from. They're not not here because of us. They're here because God loves us and he freely bestows them upon us. Let's pray. And gracious Father, we thank you for these opening words to this letter. And Father, may we consider these four doctrines. May we examine ourselves, may we look at them and truly in a spiritual way judge ourselves by them. Father, this ministry, this church, Lord, this local expression of this beautiful, holy edifice that you're building in the earth 
Lord, I pray that all of us would repent of anything we need to repent of, Lord, that we would conform unto the head of the church, that we would conform unto that glory of Christ, that we would grow in mercy, grow in love, grow in patience, that we would grow in all of those graces, Lord, that you have blessed us with, and that we would truly, out of that, be the salt and light that you've called us to be. So, Father, come now. Bless the Lord, this preaching, as Lord, from this fallible preacher. Use it to build up and to edify your church. I pray this in Christ's name, amen.